I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Jennifer Steinhauer, author and New York Times reporter. Her new book is The First, The Inside Story of the Women Reshaping Congress. In January 2019, the largest number of women ever elected to Congress was sworn in, 87 in the House and 23 in the Senate. In many instances, these were the first women and or persons of color and or youngest persons to serve from their state or district. Veteran New York Times Capitol Hill reporter Jennifer Steinhauer has been following this historic transition from day one and uses her rare vantage point to take a behind-the-scenes look at these newcomers' individual and collective attempts to usher in real change in Washington. She's covered numerous high-profile beats in her reporting career at the New York Times, from City Hall Bureau Chief and Los Angeles Bureau Chief to Capitol Hill. In 2006, she won the News Women's uh, Newswoman's Club of New York Front Page Deadline Reporting Award for her reporting on Hurricane Katrina. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Nice to have you here. Very nice to be here. It's nice for all of us to be here, I guess, in these times. I'm very happy to <laughs> yes. be here. So, uh, yeah, let's uh, be grateful for that. So, it's interesting because your book, this is Women's History Month, right? Isn't it? I assume. And uh, well, this March, is, March, but we'll extend it into April. Why not? We have to extend. Yes, exactly. I'm a. I guess I'm a week behind. But anyway, uh, yeah. Okay. So it's been Women's History Month. So your book obviously yep. fits right into all of this. Uh, so yes, where yes. was? Yeah. So, okay. So insights, deep knowledge. I mean, your book has been praised by the New York Times Book Review and lots of other women who I, whom I respect. Uh, you really got the inside scoop, I guess, over a year's period of time uh, in terms of the talking intimately with this large group of women who have never been elected to Congress or been sworn in before. Yes, I mean, the, so the idea kind of... Um stemmed obviously from the election, the midterm elections in 2018, when there were all these um, first that you mentioned before, the first Muslim women to serve in Congress, to be elected to serve in Congress, um, to the first two Native American women. There were a number of women who were the first women for their seat, the first um, person of color for that seat, the youngest, the oldest women, um, the uh, oldest freshman, Donna Shalala, by the way, who obviously had this long career before she uh, came to be a freshman member in the House. Um, I would point to someone like Lauren Underwood. Uh, she's uh, got a lot of firsts with her, but she's also pretty typical of this class. But she won. Um, she's an African-American uh, nurse, and she won in the sub- suburban district of Chicago, Naperville, where she's from, um, the majority white district. She's the first woman the first person of color, and the youngest person to ever serve um, in that district. So you had a lot of firsts going on. Um, at the same time, in this class of women uh, who were largely responsible for winning back the House for Democrats in 2018, those midterm elections that we mentioned, you had women who may not have been first, or they may have been first in some way, but they, had, they were just very unusual for freshman members of the House um, in terms of their resume. A lot of veterans, women who had served in the national security space, CIA and so forth, um, very esteemed professional backgrounds. So you had this class of freshmen, largely these new women, um, who were very unique in terms of their um, both sort of ge- the geographic 
the ethnic, racial, religious diversity, diversity, professional background, and just really uh, quite impressive as a whole um, when you look at their life experiences before coming to Congress. Yeah. And if you look at them, I guess, in the context of where they, in their context with all of these mostly, I guess, white older men, old enough to be their grandfathers, uh, it, it's it's quite a a combination, I guess, or, uh, you know, the, uh, talk to us about that, because, I mean, that, that's a very unique position to be in for these women. Well, definitely um, having a lot of new younger people, period, and especially younger women, was a big switch. Um, and let's not forget the most powerful woman in Congress and one of the most powerful women in Washington in, in, in the country period is an 80-year-old woman by the name of Nancy Pelosi who's been through a lot of things um, in her career uh, and a lot of involving women and being a first in some ways herself. And she's surrounded by other um, largely older men, not all white but principally. Um, and it's absolutely true that there were a lot of senior people in the House who were mostly uh, quite, quite old and quite senior. And so to have this new class of freshmen, you know, freshmen tend to kind of, whether they're the major- majority or minority, they tend to kind of show up in Washington, you know, try to do some things for their district, try to learn the ropes, try to, you know, hopefully get on a committee or two that's interesting, kind of um, put their head down for the most part and stay in the background. And, you know, historically, a lot of them who have chosen not to do that, um, end up in some kind of, kind of trouble, you know, often, or end up in kind of conflict with their with their um, their colleagues. And what was interesting about this class is that these women kind of felt like, hey, first of all, we won against the odds. Many of them beating um, Republicans, incumbents, and in Republican districts. Um, we ran our campaign sort of our own way, um, even if they weren't the favorite. Sometimes they weren't even favored by the party to run at all. Um, we, we, when we won, we run in crowded primaries sometimes. We, we beat Republicans in some cases. We ran our own way, and we um, have our own professional backgrounds, and we have our own maybe some way of con- connecting with people via social media that's different, raising money that way that's different. And now we're here, and you're telling us, be quiet, you know, take a back seat. And they didn't take to that very well in, in some ways. And they became a very um, headstrong, as one of them described to me, class of people um, who really wanted to and in some ways have been very influential more than you usually see from new members in Congress. Yeah. Well, I think they've become, a lot of them have become as uh, social media stars. I mean, you know, they have that kind of an advantage now, obviously, and they've taken advantage of that, right? So they... Yeah, yeah, true, and, and I would distinguish in that sense, um, I think it is important, um, although it's obviously extremely interconnected, it is important to distinguish between members of Congress, um, and particularly I'm looking at obviously the most uh, important example of this and the most high-profile example of this is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who won in 2018 in a safe Democratic district, but she took out a Democratic incumbent who'd been there for a really long time. Um, that was like the big upset that year, and obviously she's become really a, a almost basically a household name. She's certainly the face of the Democratic Party, especially the progressive wing of it, and she does have this huge social, social media following, and that's how she has chosen to communicate um, almost from day one. And she has a lot of uh, interesting power within her party, 
But that has not necessarily translated into legislative power, and if anything, it's sort of backfired on, on her at some time. So there is definitely a difference between being a leader in your party or being a leader in the movement of the party than being necessarily um, a legislative leader on Capitol Hill, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, you've had a lot of experience, obviously, a reporter. You've been on Capitol Hill. What? Why do you think that is? Why that she hasn't been able to maybe transfer uh, her, her transfer her stardom or social media stardom to actually legislative changes. Is that true only for her or for some of the others? Yeah. Well, there's a couple of reasons. I mean, so to be a successful legislator, especially when, again, you're a new member, um, you have to do a couple of things. You have to really kind of dig into your committee work. Um, You have to uh, spend a lot of time actually working with your staff on identifying issues that are important to you or to your constituents working on the legislation, you know, fitting this in between all of your other many obligations. And you have to build alliances. That's very important. You need co-sponsors for bills. Sometimes you need bipartisan alliances. Sometimes you just need them within your own party. But you have to build coalitions and you have to get people to help you. Um, if not co-sponsor your bill, certainly vote for it. Now, it, Congress, like every other institution, is very relationship-driven, perhaps more even than, than other places in the private sector. And one of the things that AOC did when she got to Capitol Hill was make it clear that she felt like the party needed to move to the left. And by the way, there were others who were elected that year and existing members of the Progressive Caucus who had been kind of, you know, um, in a sense, isolated until the Democrats took back the gavel and also these high-profile um, progressive women uh, came into the scene. And she said, you know, she kind of made it clear that she thought um, some members, including some even from her own state of New York, needed to also be taken out the way Joe Crowley, who she had beaten, should be removed um, in, in a primary situation with a more progressive colleague. And that, you know, doesn't sit well with people. And even if they're not the target of it, um, they certainly don't want to hear that about their colleagues. So she had a hard time building allies. Her staff was also very aggressive in the beginning, um, calling out other members, being critical, being critical of their staff. Um, being critical of um, aspects of the institution, by the way, as were others, but she, they were so chin forward about it that she really alienated a lot of people and had a hard time building those coalitions. And she was spending a lot of time on uh, those aspects that we talked about in terms of, uh, you know, being on social media, connecting on the broader national stage. She spends a lot of time, you know, being a national figure. And sometimes that doesn't work when you're trying to sort of represent just your district. So those were some of her struggles. I was really interested to see that she has done very little endorsements of the more progressive candidates who are running this year against um, her colleagues, her Democratic colleagues in the House. She seems to kind of backed away from doing that. And that, to me, was an indication that she probably is interested in really trying to have more of a legislative presence and really be a full member of the House. We'll see. But that was a real uh, signal to me. Well, let's talk about some of the issues, obviously, that she and, and these other uh, young young women in Congress um, are, I guess, have, have run on the issues that they, they, they're most concerned about, which, you know, having to do with, with child care and, and uh, you know, equity and pay for women, uh, those kinds of issues. Uh, Healthcare. Let's start with healthcare because health. You know, we're talking about healthcare right now in the age of the COVID nineteen, right? So, how does this all fit in yeah. in terms of yeah, what their goals are? 
Well, you know, um, it's, I'm glad you brought up health care because I think that was absolutely crucial to their wins in um, 2018. If you recall, um, back in uh, 2018, and so in 2016 when uh, Trump won the White House, you had all Republican control of Washington, White House, Congress, both, both, both um, House and the Senate. And one thing that they focused on a lot over those two years was attempting and they didn't ultimately were not able to do it, but attempting to um, unravel the Affordable Care Act. And a lot of these women really ran on that issue. Now, a lot of, as you may know, um, Trump became pretty unpopular, um, particularly among women in the suburbs of all parties. And so that was an asset that they tried to leverage. But the other huge thing that they talked about a lot was about the Affordable Care Act, um, and about healthcare generally. And now that has somewhat morphed, um, uh, into talking about affordable drug prices. Obviously, everybody knows some of the specific high profile drugs that have gotten very expensive. This and healthcare access and affordability, um, and the structure of our healthcare system obviously has come into a whole diff- different light in, in the COVID-19 situation. And they're spending a lot of time, as all politicians are obviously talking about that now. So healthcare, has always been the cornerstone of this class from a policy standpoint. But a lot of the women also, when they got to the Hill, did definitely try to build coalitions around, I don't know if you call them women's issues. They're almost more, they affect women a lot, um, certainly about um, child care, but about paid family leave and things like that, which they were able to actually work with the Republican Senate uh, to do for federal workers um, in a defense bill. So they definitely have been able to push forward some of those issues, at least in the House. Not all of them, not all those measures have, have succeeded in the Senate, which is controlled by Republicans. But they've really helped set some of that agenda for sure. I mean, we're not talking, obviously, as you say, about just women's issues. It's family issues, whoever that family happens to be when we're talking about health care, child care, equal pay, all of those issues. Those are family issues, uh, not just women's issues. So let's bring it into the now. How does it, how do you think this is all going to, or the impact, what is the impact you do think that people, that uh, these women are going to have given, because you've had, given your book, the first intimate contact with them and, and, uh, you know, for what, over a year's period and writing this book and uh, really, how do you think they will be able to accomplish some of this stuff in, you know, I'd say the age of COVID-19. Right. Well, first, just kind of pivoting back to politics, I think that everything that you see playing until, you know, the COVID moment, everything that you saw playing out in the Democratic primary in the race for the White House, in terms of the progressive and the, and the moderate to kind of use general terms, because obviously there are a lot of, you know, there's a lot of spectrum even within those two terms. And sometimes people are moderate on one thing, but progressive on other things. But, you know, just for the purpose of this conversation and defining these politics this way, um, you see, uh, when you see the tensions between, if you will, the Bernie wing of the party and the more moderate uh, Biden, other, and other, uh, other people who ran, you saw that all play out um, in the 116th Congress in that first year that I was following the women. And so I would say in terms of defining the Democratic Party, 
um, and its future, there's been that struggle, and women in this ha- in the House have defined both ends of that. But I think when it comes to the progressive wing of the party, you know, AOC has really set that agenda in some ways. Obviously, she got a lot of people not um, as policy in the House, for sure, because there are all these different opinions about this. But in terms of the progressive side of the party, she's pushed forward, for example, the New Green Deal. Um, she was the one who was really stimulating the conversation about money and politics and not taking certain types of donations and trying to focus on um, you know, individual donations, getting money out of politics in some ways. She, um, she was, uh, you know, kind of changing the conversation about a lot of things uh, that were really sort of almost on the fringe for a while. So politically, we see a lot of her contributions, um, if, if you want to look at it that way. Not everybody, obviously, in the party does. But they, that, that's, you know, there's no doubt that she's the titular head of that wing of things. So that influence has happened it's there. The party is dealing with that, um, and she may represent the future of where it goes. In terms of legislation, again, I think that they have influenced a lot of bills that have passed in the House, but because you have Republicans in control of the Senate, how much that actually becomes law or something that Trump would sign does is obviously limited. But I do think that um, the other piece of this, even within the House, and I would say this from my conclusion, had less to do with having more women than it did with having more diversity are putting forward a lot of things that may have been a little more back burner or not as much attention, for example, um, uh, issues for Native American women who have a lot of very specific struggles um, in our culture that have also been dealt with legislatively but became much more front and center, especially with Deb Holland from New Mexico. Um, you know, she's just been, spent a lot of time on these issues. I think about Lauren Underwood, who we talked about from the Chicago suburbs, who started the Black Maternal um, Women's Health Caucus to focus on what's been a, a big scourge in our country, which is the um, high rate of, of Black maternal death. Um, so... That, again, was something that there was never a caucus that was formed around that. And she got a lot of people to to rally around her and get involved in a cause like that that you just might not have seen become so central and get so much attention. And some of it, too, by the way, getting out of the policy and legislating side of things is sort of changing the culture of the Hill. And what do I mean by that? Some of it's very small things, but they're very meaningful to members. For example, changing the recess calendar in Congress so that Congress is out kind of at the same time that kids have spring break, you know, making things more family friendly for for women and men in Congress, um, having Things like changing rooms, uh, changing stations in both the men's and women's bathrooms. Heck, women didn't even have a bathroom off the House floor until 2011. So sometimes it's the material culture of the place you work, too, where you start to see these these changes. Yeah, so uh, that's a really good point, I think, uh, making that distinction between it's not just the fact that they are women. It's more the diversity of uh, they have. There's an openly gay woman in Congress. there's Muslim women. I mean, you mentioned some, but it, it really runs the gamut, uh, which obviously I, I think is a really good thing. Um, I just want to spend a little bit of time. I mean, I'll mention your book again, the first, the inside story of the women reshaping Congress. We're talking to Jennifer Steinhauer. But Jennifer, how has all, I'm getting back to maybe your personal story, because I kind of, when I um, doing my interviews now, like how has all of this, what's happened to us now, this pandemic affected your work? You're an author, you're a writer, you're a journalist. 
Oh, that's such an interesting question. <laughs> um, so it's, well, you know, it's very interesting. I was uh, talking to a friend today about, and I'm sure you've had these discussions too, and I'm sure all your listeners have had these conversations with their, their family and their friends and their coworkers about the kinds of things that this has changed, what will be, what, what will be permanent, what won't last, um, what we learned from it, and we're obviously still going through so much of it. Obviously, we stopped working in the office quite a while ago. I'm based in Washington, D.C., but the New York office, the main mothership, if you will, and the satellite offices have had people working from home. I already worked from home a little bit. That transition wasn't as difficult for me, but I see a lot of colleagues struggling with that, and they're doing their Zoom meetings and everything, um, and sort of sometimes like kind of losing track of what's going on. I mean, you can't go out. I did go out um, to do one story. I interviewed the governor of Maryland. Um, and we had a socially distanced interview, uh, and that was the one. You know, you have to take your chances very, very carefully. I'm doing a story now that I would like to be a photo essay, and we've talked a lot about how to even incorporate photography uh, when photographers, you know, can't get close to the subjects or even come anywhere near subjects. So we're having people send their own photos for this um, sometimes, using historical photos and things like that. Um, so that's one way. Obviously, as it comes to promoting my book, my book came out on March 10th. Um, I think I did the, I was, did the last, second to last um, event at Politics and Prose, which is our wonderful local independent bookstore here in Washington, D.C., and then all of that shut down, all of the... Um, you know, uh, appearances in bookstores, festivals, all that kind of thing. What's been interesting about that is um, I have formed a network of women and men who had books come out in April, March and April, and we've been supporting each other and talking to each other and sometimes doing um, events together virtually. I did something with Gerald Posner, who has a new book out called Pharma. Um, we had a conversation on Instagram Live uh on my publisher's account. Sometimes he does things on his account. I did yesterday, I did a, a bookstore event. Um, I was meant to be in Richmond at Wonderful Fountain Books, and they used this a platform called CrowdSource, and I went on and talked about my book, and people, you know, asked questions uh, virtually. So that's been a big transition, and it's had to, you know, usually when you do transitions in an industry, you kind of ease into it, but like everything, everyone's kind of doing it on the fly. You're talking to me today. At some point, you'll probably hear my dog bark. <laughs> The world I did hear your dog bark. Um, <laughs> yes, uh, and that's just, you know, these are, but you know, it's funny, I think everyone's just kind of becoming more forgiving of ambient noise, and we see about this, children in the screen during Zoom meetings, um, people's, you know, uh, maybe messy bookshelves behind them. I mean, it's more, our own kind of lives have crept into our workspace in these very interesting and definitely not always welcome ways, but it's been difficult in some ways to obviously have conversations with people about my book, but then, you know, look at, we can still do the wonderful radio and podcasts and that's, a, that's pretty much the same except for some of the ambient noise that we discussed. But the journalism part of talking to people and not being with them um, is definitely more challenging, but I think that it's doable. I think it's a different way of talking to people um, and having to focus a lot on, on conversation and not as much as absorbing the atmosphere around them. Now, some of my colleagues have embedded, um, you've probably seen some of the stories, in hospitals um, and, and emergency rooms and uh, with EMS. Um, and it's difficult work, you know, um, and, and very, uh, you know, it's obviously very risky. And it's kind of different because, you know, journalists often take risks around the world, um, covering wars, for example. 
but the risk is to themselves. And there's a whole different element here that people are trying to wrap their brains around, which is you go out in a story, perhaps you are risking your own health, but then the question is who else are you risking in the chain, whether it's your family or other people that you come into, you know, any kind of even socially distanced contact with. And I think that's been a difficult concept, you know, the journalists are working through. So it's definitely very strange at different times in our profession, just like everybody else that's listening. Yeah, I'm doing a show next week for a university on resiliency. So, uh, and I'm I'm listening mm. to how resilient you've been and how your colleagues do, everybody reacts differently. So I guess my next question is like, in terms of resiliency, you know, we, it, it's, we, you know, the virus is here. This is the way it is and how we react to it becomes, we have choices. We all have choices. We have different choices. So what would you say was your most resilient characteristics? What's helped you get through this? I mean, you've really given us a great example of what you've done and how you've done it, but where does that come from? We have four minutes left. I mean, I really think, you know, my my experience is probably quite similar to most people, which I do think the human connection is important. Um, you know, at first we're talking on the phone because we're all used to talking on the phone. And then at some point you realize talking on the phone is not replacing um, human interactions. And I have a group of friends, that, you know, we, we said, let's do this. Let's have a couple weeks ago we had our, our Zoom um, happy hour. And, you know, some people were on the phone, some people were on a laptop, and some people, you know, someone had a beer and someone was mixing a drink. And it felt absolutely different than talking on the phone, even if we had a conference call, um, even if we'd have a Zoom call without any... Uh, without any visuals, without any video, that being able to see people, um, I think, is important. I hear a lot of people talking about connecting people, you know, from high school, people they wouldn't normally connect with. I, you know, it's really, I think there's another interesting aspect to this is that, you know, we've, we've kind of been reading about and feeling in our lives a lot of negativity toward um, the tech culture, you know, and, and some of the problems that have come up with spreading misinformation and some of the behavior of the tech companies. Um, they've been kind of in our crosshairs for a while. And you think about um, what technology has enabled us to do in this period, whether it's, you know, getting news from, which is, by, by the way, still has downsides, but getting news um, disseminated and hearing what's going on, uh, being able to uh, talk on our cell phones, have our Internet connections, you know, have our kids for as well as at work taking classes um, and being able to connect with people as insecure and, and Trump as you know problematic as Zoom can be, at least we can do that. We can connect. I think just maintaining human connections through technology, for me professionally and personally, has probably been my tool. And I think that I'm not unique in that way. It's a new kind of intimacy that we have to get used to. This is this is our. Uh, that's a, as you're describing it. That's what it sounds like to me. It really is a new kind of intimacy because. We can't touch people, but we can connect. And then there's obviously very creative ways in which to do that. So uh, it's been great talking to you today. Uh, your book, The First, The Inside Story of the Women Reshaping Congress, Jennifer Steinhauer. That's who we've been talking to. Uh, Jennifer, one minute less. Just give us a couple websites we can go to, more information about you and about your book. Um, well, thank you. Uh, JenniferSteinhauer.com uh, has my tour on it, which really isn't there anymore, but I'm putting <laughs> my virtual events on there. Um, you know, obviously, you can go to Amazon and you can support your local booksellers um, through IndieBooks.org. I believe they can connect you uh, with any bookstore around the country. And, you know, check out your local bookstore. A lot of them really are trying to do virtual events with authors, and they're still they're close. You can't go there, but they're still definitely shipping books, and they're um, really 
trying hard to stay alive here, and I think they are doing it through uh, the efforts of, of readers who are continuing to order books online. So just, right. uh, I would say, any bookstore you normally would buy from, check out their website. I'm probably there, or check out jennifersteinhauer.com. You can get some links there as well. Jennifer, great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Stay healthy, stay safe, and I also say stay sane. <laughs> uh, same to you, and I appreciate your interest, and have a great day. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Mm-hmm. 